TheYeshiva.net. When the rabbi reached out uh, to us a few months ago to discuss today's events, and the topic would be staying calm in a very uncertain world, in a very unstable world, I don't think any one of us could have guessed the dramatic upheavals and changes that happened just over the last few days, as the rabbi just mentioned, with the war in Ukraine. I don't know if you know, but there are hundreds of thousands of Jews that live in the Ukraine. Sometimes you'll see small amounts of number, a number that is a very small amount, but if you speak to the leaders of the Ukrainian Jewish communities, you know that over 70 years of communism, so many Jews went into hiding. They simply felt that it had to be clandestine and secret. And many emerged after the fall of communism. So you're talking about a, a enormously one of the largest communities in the world. You're talking about a community of approximately three to 400,000 Jews in the Ukraine. And just last night, after Shabbos here in New York, I had the opportunity to speak to around five or six of the spiritual leaders of Ukrainian Jewry. It was very emotional, it was heart-wrenching, it was moving. I spoke to some of the extraordinary Chabad ambassadors who are in Ukraine. There are 183 Chabad Shluchim, that's families, so you're talking about hundreds or thousands, about 183 Chabad Shluchim ambassadors, rabbis and rebbitsons, 183 couples and families who are spiritual leaders and have built Judaism in various cities of Ukraine, in the larger cities, in smaller cities, in Shtetlach, and I had a chance to have a direct conversation with some of the Chabad Shluchim in Kharkov, which is the second to the largest city in Ukraine after Kiev and is under attack. Sumy, uh, Mariupol, uh, Chernigov, <coughs> and some other cities. It was incredible to hear their first-hand reports. They are all in, in basements and shelters with their children, and many of them with many Jews of the community who have gathered in their homes or in their shuls or in Chabad centers for shelter. And the incredible thing, I just have to share this with you, as I was going into bed last night, it was late after midnight after I got off the phone with some of them, I thought to myself, here I'm going into a bed in Rockland County, New York, but there's hundreds of thousands of Jews who are in a very deep state of fear. And I want you to know that all of these rabbis and rebbitzins are citizens either of Israel or of America. They could have all left. And I asked one of the rabbis, how many left? And he told me, not one. Not one of them left. Because most of the community can't leave. It's not like people, you know, they have a second house and they have money, you get on a plane and you go live in London for two months, go live in Paris, go live in Tel Aviv, (laughs) go live in Melbourne for two months, come to New York for a few months, stay, hang out in Manhattan or Muncie. Most of the Jews, they don't have that opportunity. And these leaders, real shepherds, decided to remain with them. And I asked one of the rabbis, Rabbi Moskowitz in Kharkov, he's in a basement, in a shelter in a basement with little kids with mattresses. And I said, how do you feel about it? And he says, it's an unbelievable privilege. Everything I have learned all my life, now I can finally experience all my learning my whole life, all the Torah, all the faith, 
all of our conversations and meditations about what it means to live in a place of serenity, of fortitude, of resilience, of oneness, of very deep emun and faith. He says, it's now can all come to the fore. It was all for these moments. And he described the, the commitment of, of these Chabad Shluchim to their constituents and the spirit of the communities, what happened on Shabbos, the singing and the dancing and the praying. He says, there's no prayer like a prayer. I'm, I'm smiling. It's, it's, it's far from funny. As you can hear in the background, and I can hear in the background, the sounds literally of, of, of missiles, of bombs, of explosions. So for one, I, was, I received so much, I received so much strength from speaking to these people who are in a very, very difficult situation. As they all told me, this is not an easy situation. This is a very, very difficult situation. It's a very unpredictable situation. And of course, I asked some of them, what can we do for you? Do you want money? Do you need food? And some of them need food and they need money. But they all told me the most important thing is ask our brothers and sisters to pray for us and ask our brothers and sisters to increase in their mitzvahs, in their good deeds and acts of goodness and kindness and learning of Torah and prayer and, 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 and commitment to mitzvahs and to Yiddishkeit. That will strengthen us. And the truth is that you know, their, their words are as powerful as words can be because as our great sages have taught us over the generations that the entire Jewish people are literally a single organism. We are like a body, one body, and we know in exercise, whenever you exercise, whenever you heal, whenever you repair or perfect, even one limb or organ of your body, the entire body is affected because the body is not compartmentalized. There's the nine systems that work in our organism all work in a holistic, integrated fashion. The blood circulates throughout the entire body in the circulatory system. And the central nervous system of the brain governs and is interconnected with every single dimension and every cell of the 70 trillion cells. So therefore, any part of the body that is strengthened, it empowers directly and indirectly every other limb and organ in the body. The same is true with the Jewish people. When any limb of the Jewish people in London or anywhere else in the world strengthens itself, becomes more empowered, becomes more refined, becomes more pure, becomes more holy, becomes more divine, we ourselves become channels of, of, of light and of love and of compassion. It strengthens literally every single Jew in the world. And it strengthens the entire world, every good person in the world. So our connection with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine is not just through the news. It's spiritual, it's deep, it's authentic, it's metaphysical and metahistorical. It dates back to the beginning of the Jewish people and continues with an unshakable, unbreakable unity that affects all of us in the profoundest, in the profoundest way. You know, when I think of this latest upheaval of the war in Ukraine. It's extremely moving to all of us. It's very, it's, 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 it touches us in a very deep place, especially because it's Ukraine. And I want to say something about this. You know, you, there's not, every centimeter in Ukraine is drenched with Jewish blood. I don't know that there's a community in the world that suffered like the Ukrainian Jewish community. Of course, the entire 
our entire nation in Eastern Europe, we know what happened. And everybody was affected in ways that can't even be described with a quill. But there's something surreal and really absolutely unique historically when you think about the Ukraine. Jews have been there for more than a millennium. And literally, when I tell you, I don't exaggerate. When you say shtetl after shtetl, village after village, city after city, is drenched with Jewish blood over the centuries. You may have heard of the pogroms of 1648, 1649, the Chmelenetsky pogroms, when the Cossacks slaughtered, tortured, in the most horrific ways, which I'm not going to describe, the Ukrainian Jewish community. The numbers are not even clear how, much, how many were killed. Some put it at 300,000. Some put it at smaller numbers. But enormous amounts of, of, of Jews, men, women, and children, and in horrific ways. This is in the 17th century. The community was still relatively young. And then again in the 18th century, the famous pogroms, again of the Cossacks of 1768. There were the famous heinous pogroms of the 1880s after the assassination of Alexander II, the Tsar, Alexander II, after his assassination, in 1881, pogroms were unleashed on Ukrainian Jewry, which caused a mass immigration also to the United States, to England, to other places. And then there was, during the Civil War, after the Bolsh- after the Revolution of 1917, that claimed, some say 50, 100,000 lives. These are things that are not even known, how Ukrainian Jewry suffered poverty, savage, savage subjugation, torture, bloodshed, violence, and death. And then came 1941. 1941, even the most conservative numbers put the number of victims of Ukraine at 900,000. Some say it's more like 1.5, 1.6 million. Jews in almost every community of Ukraine shot Literally, if you go out to every shtetl or every village outside of Ukraine, there's a grave there with thousands of Jewish holy bodies, men, women, children, old and young, shot by the Eisenhower's that came in after June 41 when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. Stalin didn't expect it. And they went literally from city to city, and not hundreds of thousands, more than a million Ukrainian Jews. We all know the Babi Yar story that happened on Yom Kippur, the time of the days before Yom Kippur. In two days, 33,000 Jews shot, placed in a grave. So when you think about Ukraine, what the Jewish people went through in Ukraine, and then, and then, despite the fact before the Holocaust, there were two and a half million Jews living in Ukraine, and close to a million escaped. Close to a million escaped, and many of them came back after the war. But under Stalin's communism, you couldn't practice as a Jew. You couldn't live as a Jew in the open. Tremendous anti-Semitism, tremendous hatred. And remember, the Ukrainians assisted the Nazis in the dirty work and the filthy work of slaughtering the Jews. And then communism falls, and a miracle of miracle happens. The resurrection of Ukrainian Jewry, the most incredible, incredible, one of the greatest miracles of Jewish history. If you want to understand the miracle of Jewish history, you go back to those places and you see the Tchias HaMesim. You know the prophecy of Ezekiel, where he discusses how he sees the dry bones and they have no hope. And God says the dry bones will come back to life. As I say to you, and I know many of them are friends and colleagues, 183 
and this is in Chabad movement, and the other rabbis and leaders who have come and resurrected Judaism and all of the communities of Ukraine, affecting thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews in one way or another with schools and mikvahs and shuls and camps and social programs and senior citizen programs and programs for youth and for middle-aged people and for the elderly, men, women and children, Jewish holidays and Shabbos. Simply incredibly inspiring to understand the secret of Netzach Yisrael, the eternity of Israel. So when you look at such a history, and remember something else, some of the greatest luminaries of the Jewish world came from Ukraine. The Baal Shemtev, who changed the Jewish world, where did he come from? Ukraine. He was born there, raised there, lived there in Mezhebush, Ukraine. The Lubavitcher Rebbe, who changed the Jewish world in our generation, where was he born and raised? In Ukraine. He was born in Nikolaev, raised in Dnepropetrovsk. It was the cradle of the extraordinary Hasidic movement. Luminaries like Reb Nachum Chernobyl, like Reb Nachman of Breslov, the great, one of the great spiritual masters of Judaism. Also Ukraine, his burial places in Uman, which also experienced some heavy explosions in the last few days <clears throat> as we pray for all of those communities in Ukraine. I think three of the prime ministers of Israel come from Ukraine, if I'm not mistaken. Moshe Sharet, Levi Eshkol, and Golda Meir. If you're familiar with Hebrew literature, you have Echad Ha'am, Shalom Aleichem, Avram Shalansky. You have uh, Yiddish literature, Shalom Aleichem, Adessa. <laughs> Ukraine uh, pulsated, pulsated with Jewish culture, with Jewish life, in many, many different manifestations, many disagreements and many debates with, with, which Jews are prone to. So Ukraine is dear not just to Jews who live there or have relatives there or have friends there, like some of us do, but really it touches something at the core of the Jewish heart and Jewish history. And as I said, we are all one organism. We are all one body. Even if we sometimes deny it or we don't feel it or we don't see it, it's the real truth of our, of our reality. And those Jews give us tremendous strength as we want to give them strength thinking about them, praying for them, sending our love, our blessings, our prayers, and every, every possible thing we can do financially and spiritually to be able to uplift the morale and strengthen their spirit during these very, very excruciatingly challenging and difficult times. How do we internally and emotionally process this? I have to say something else. The Chabach Liach of Sumi, his name is Rabbi Levitansky, he sent me last night a report that his eight-year-old daughter gave her teacher in Israel. She learns on it with a teacher in Israel, so she gave her a report in Hebrew. An eight-year-old girl talking about the explosions that she heard on Shabbos, the tzatzot she heard on Shabbos. And the way she processes it, I'm like, wow! The ability to process because we know about trauma. What is trauma? Trauma is not the event that happens. Trauma is that which is stuck in our body, and it doesn't have an empathetic witness. We have no way of processing it, only through repressing it, or through criticizing it, and delegitimizing it, and getting angry at it. But that real deep ability to be an empathetic witness to painful events inside of you and around you, changes everything. And I was listening to this little girl, how she was processing and talking about the Shabbos with her parents and her community. And I was like, Micha Amcha Yisrael. Just such an incredible purity of, of, of love and faith 
emuna betachin, compassion. Wow. How do we learn from it in our own lives? Where you're living in London, you're living in New York, everybody went through an upheaval the last few years that we couldn't expect. And how do we process it? How do we internalize a calmness, a serenity during challenging times, during, during uncertain times? And I want to say, I want to share with you what I think are a few fundamental ideas from our Torah, from our tradition, that I think can help each of us. At least I try, I hope it can help me, and I think it can help many of us. Process the information, process the experiences in ways that build us, in ways that make us better people, in ways that keep us more connected, more anchored, and also more relaxed more serene, more happy, more confident, and more wholesome. Point number one. The last few years have brought out layers of self that have not been brought out previously. I know it to be true about myself, about my family, about people who are close to me, and anyone I come in contact with. I've seen it from the beginning of Corona. A certain superficiality that was part of many of our lives, has been stripped. You know, sometimes, what was it, Shakespeare? That's your, your neck of the woods. What did he say? Some people are born great, right? And some people grow into greatness, and some people have greatness hurled upon them. The unforgettable Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, your former chief rabbi of blessed memory, would say, he says, I don't know that every Jew is born great, or every Jew develops greatness, he says, but every, every Jew has greatness hurled upon him or her simply by our history, by our, by our sheer genes, by our past and our present and our future. Or as God tells Moses, every Jew is mamleches kayanim v'goy kadosh. You're part of a kingdom of princesses and a sacred nation. But often it's easy to deny it. You know, I look in the mirror and I just can choose a more superficial lifestyle. But sometimes events happen in your life, curveballs come your way, and I can't surrender to mediocrity anymore. I can't just live a life of quiet desperation. I think that was Thoreau who said most people live lives of quiet desperation. We are challenged in ways that are unexpected. Or to paraphrase Thomas Paine, these are times that try men's souls. These are times that try men's souls and women's souls and all of our souls. And they bring out sometimes the worst in people and they bring sometimes out the best in people. You've seen in last years, last few years, some very deep anger that emerges from people. An anger that comes from a place of being completely unsettled. I have nothing I can hold on to and I literally, it's like almost as a shipwreck, a shipwreck. And I'm going to hold on to anything I can hold on to, even if it proves futile. I've seen this here in the United States of America again and again. People are so desperate to hold on to something, to be anchored in something stable. So they'll take something that looks stable and they'll hold on to it because I don't want to drown. It turns out that that object that you're holding on to is going straight down. It can't hold you up. There's no substance to it. It can't keep you afloat. It can't help you soar but I'll hold on to anything because I'm desperate. I don't want to drown. 
And that's why we have seen in the last few years, I'm not a sociologist, I don't mean to give here uh, scholastic sociological interpretations for everything that's happening in society, but I think it's a sentiment that I'm just experiencing, so I'm sharing it with you. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I don't think I'm, I, I somehow feel that there's a truth here. That the, the, the upheavals in the world, because remember, the corona brought 7.7 billion people to their knees. It was the first time in decades, centuries, that in Tehran and in Baghdad and in New York, in Borough Park and in Stamford Hill and in Golders Green <laughs> and in downtown London and in your synagogues and in uh, Australia, everybody was talking about the same thing, corona. The vulnerability of the human race has emerged in its ferocious intensity. And scientists and doctors who we trusted so much were clueless. Many of them are still clueless. What do you do at such moments? It's very difficult. So we see that a lot of people have literally reverted to absolutely a lifestyle of very deep anger. And the anger comes from deep, deep fear, deep, deep anxiety. And I'll hold on to anything. And people become absolute enemies at such moments. There's no conversation. There's no dialogue. Because it's literally, I go back into my amygdala and I'm just coping. I'm co- it's a coping mechanism. I'm trying to survive. A lot of rationality has been thrown out the window. People who are otherwise intelligent, you can't talk to them. You want to talk to them face to face. Almost intelligence goes out the window. Why? That's what fear does. Fear shuts us down. It makes us stop thinking. But I want to say something else. I have seen during the last few years, some of the highest angels come out from people. People not becoming their worst version of themselves, but people becoming the best version of themselves. Such idealism, such clarity of thought, so much love, so much spiritual focus, such unwavering commitment, such deep faith, fortitude, wisdom, resilience, depth. In Hebrew, the beautiful word for depth is amkos, amok. These are times that try people's souls and challenge us in deep ways, and I have a choice. The choice is either I just grab onto whatever I can grab on and turn former friends into enemies, people who disagree with me into enemies, and I live in this little bubble and read only things I agree with and get upset at anybody who doesn't agree with me, and I become vindictive, and I become a little bit like an indoctrinated zombie. And we see this happening in political conversations and in other conversations across the spectrum of people. But there's another choice. And the other choice is that your deepest self emerges. A self that you didn't even know exists. A leadership, a self that is defined by very, very deep wisdom. A wisdom that does not confuse short-term with long-term. A wisdom that does not confuse decisions made out of trauma with decisions coming from a place of empowerment and deep, deep awareness, decisions that come not out of weakness but out of strength, people who rise up to the occasion and become voices of unwavering clarity, decisive truth, ambassadors of love, light, and hope, compassion, authenticity, wisdom, healing, redemption. It's a choice everybody makes during such moments. I can become the worst version of myself, which is understandable.
or I can become the best version of myself, which is the opportunity that every one of us has and what our children and our future deserve. It goes back to that moment in the book of Esther. We're soon going to celebrate Purim. And Esther is the first lady. She's the spouse of Ahasuerus. There's a genocide decree on the Jewish people. Haman convinced the king to wipe out and exterminate every Jew, heaven forbid. And Mordechai pleads with Queen Esther, go into your husband and plead and beseech him to save the Jewish people. And she says, I can't. I'm married to a nutjob. I'm married to an alcoholic, a Persian monarch. You think Iran now is bad. That's the same Iran. <laughs> Wants to kill every Jew. I go, out, I go in without permission. I come out with a head shorter. And Mordechai tells her one line, and it could still pierce your heart. It's in chapter 4 of the book of Esther. He says, Who knows if this is not the reason you became a queen? And those words inspire her to sacrifice her life, put her life in jeopardy, go into her husband, and navigate events to the point where she saves the entire Jewish nation. Until today, we are here today because of Queen Esther. Thank you, Queen Esther. But what motivated her? Those words. Mordechai told her, you are not where you are by mistake. You were chosen to be in the palace when you were chosen to be in the palace because you have a mission. Life is not random. We are not random mutations. We are not insignificant and valueless cells that mutate. We should not be defined and not define ourselves as an infinitesimal blimp on the surface of infinity amounting to nothing. All of Judaism is a meditation contrary to this. You were conceived in love. Your life is meaningful. Where you are is part of your unique mission. Your soul was sent down there on a mission. All of your gifts, all of your resources, all of your talents, and all of your challenges, all of your past experiences are all part of this unique journey that your soul needed to go on in order to be in the place where it is so that you should be able to flex your physical and spiritual and emotional muscles and light up your corner of the world and infuse yourself and your loved ones and the people around you and your community and ultimately the whole world with more awareness, with more oneness, with more love, with more hope, with more authenticity, with more truth. And when you can wake up with that sense of mission, everything changes. I was asking myself this morning, I had a hard time sleeping, I'll tell you the truth, because I was just thinking about the contrast. People, I asked to some of the guys in Chernigov, that's Ukraine, and in, uh, in some, other, some other cities, you're all in the basements, what do you sleep? And we slept down mattresses. Do they have food? So one of them doesn't have food. They said, but somebody's bringing flour from the mill. They're bringing flour. They're bringing flour. Somebody else is bringing beans and somebody else is harvesting barley. And I'm thinking to myself, when was the last time I harvested barley and saw flour being brought from the mill? But I also felt a certain serenity from people who know what their mission is and that they are on a mission. Now, it's easy to talk about it. When it comes to the visceral experience, everything changes because the body gets overwhelmed by fear. But this is part of the gift of Judaism, that on a daily basis we train to integrate these truths of as Mordechai says, 
There's a reason you're in the palace. There's a reason you are where you are. There's a reason you are who you are. And there's a reason you went through whatever you went through. And don't allow it to reduce you to victimhood. But allow it to challenge you and bring out the best, the deepest, the most juicy, choiciest parts of your soul. Because every crisis, from a Jewish perspective, is also an opportunity. The word in Hebrew for a breakdown is mashber. The same word in the Bible, in the Hebrew, in the Tanakh, is used as a birthing stool. Isha yoshevet al hamashber. A woman who would sit in times of yore on a birthing stool is the same word. Why? Two opposites. Because in Judaism, everything that gets broken, every breakdown, is an invitation for a new birth. It's painful, it's hard. But it's how Judaism sees the world, it sees history. When one door closes, another door opens. When my previous paradigm breaks, when my old lifestyle is shattered and shaken up, I can become angry, I can become vindictive, I can become restless. And those are normal emotions and I have to... We all have those moments. There's panic and there's hysteria and there's chaos and my body is dysregulated and we have to become an empathetic witness to our experiences and allow ourselves to sublimate ourselves with compassion to a deeper place where I open myself up to the opportunities that are before me. Each and every one of us has now opportunities that we never had before because we see things with more clarity. Our doors of perception have been cleansed. We have been forced to shed layers of vanity, egotism, haughtiness, arrogance, narcissism, the need for validation, living a more superficial life where we allow distractions to distract us from our priorities. Which brings to mind a wonderful anecdotal story that I wanted to share with you. There was a professor who was talking to his students and he came in with a big glass jar and he filled it with pretty nice sized rocks till the top and he asked his students, do you think I could fill this jar with anything else? It's filled to the top and they said, no, there's no space for anything else. So he took out a cup with little pebbles and sure enough, he poured them into the jar And there was plenty of space for the little pebbles between the spaces of all the big rocks. Now the pebbles reach the top of the jar. They fill the jar. And he turns to the students. Is there any place for anything else? They said, no, not anymore. And he took out a cup of sand. And of course, he went on to pour the sand into the jar. And there was enough place for all the sand till the top of the jar. And he turns to the students. What about now? They said, now there's really no place for anything else. And he took out a cup of water (laughs) and he poured it in and there was plenty of space for the water until the jar filled up. And he turned to the students and he said, what's the lesson? So some said the lesson is there's always more space for something else, right? You ever sat at a Shabbos table and people say after the third course, I am stuffed, I'm satiated, I can't breathe anymore until... The dessert comes out. What do they say? If there's place in the heart, there's place in the house, if there's place in the taste buds, there's place in the stomach. But then the teacher said there's a much deeper lesson. 
The deeper lesson, he says, if I would have started with the water, there would have been not place for anything else unless the water would be displaced. I started with the big rocks and then there was space for little rocks, for sand, and even for water, for a good drink, (laughs) whatever that drink looks like. He said in life, make sure you first secure the big things, the foundational things, the important things. Make sure those go into the bottle first. Then you'll have space for the pebbles. You'll have space for the sand. You'll have space for the water. What are the big rocks? What are the big things? Those are the questions we have to answer during such times. What are you anchored in? Something that is stable, consistent, unwavering. A tree that will not be uprooted because its roots go so deep. They're not shallow. They may be still waters, but they run deep. I need to be anchored in something that's unshakable. We could learn from King David. King David says in Psalms 27, my father and mother abandoned me, but God took me in. King David says in Psalm 23, even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear not evil because you are with me. Nathan Sharansky, the famous refusenik from the USSR, wrote a book, Fear No Evil. And he describes how nine years in the Gulag, what kept him sane was the book of Psalms. He couldn't even read Hebrew. The Jew who grew up in communist Russia, no Hebrew lessons. He taught himself Hebrew in the prison. And even in solitary confinement, when he went on a hunger strike, was they wouldn't give him back his psalms, his book of psalms. He taught himself Hebrew. He says that book kept him sane, kept him alive, kept him Jewish. Even when I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear not evil because you're with me. King David says in Psalms 139, when I ascend to heaven, you're there. When I go down into the abyss, I see you as well. I acquire wings and I go to the end of the seas. There too, your right arm will hold on to me. I say there is so much darkness that is eclipsing my vision. But the truth is, no darkness can eclipse your presence. Because even night will shine like day. Darkness will be transformed into light. What is King David telling us? King David knew what trauma is. King David knew what instability is. King David was always, almost always on the run for his life. He had no easy life. He was not welcome in his own family when he finally got married. His father-in-law wanted to kill him. When he finally was a king, his own son wanted to kill him. But throughout, he had something to hold on to that he knew would never fail him. And that was the fact that he was anchored in the presence of God. He knew that God is holding his hand and always with him. King David was anchored in the core of his own soul. And the soul is a piece of God. The soul is a derivative of the infinite consciousness of God. The soul, the mystics say, is a chilek elikami mal mamish. It's a spark of the, the divine. It's a manifestation of God's light in this world. He was always anchored in that place. When I can be anchored in that place, when my big rocks are there, now you could fit in other things, but make sure those big rocks are there. What do those big rocks look like? They look like the times that you spend in prayer. The moments that you dedicate for meditation, for connecting with the core, with your own soul, with the soul of the world, with Hashem. They're the times that you dedicate to the story of Torah that give oxygen to the Jewish mind and to the Jewish brain and to the Jewish body in a world of uncertainty. 
They're the moments that we dedicate to really good deeds, the deeds that are divine deeds, what we call mitzvahs, masim tevim, deeds of goodness and kindness, deeds of love and compassion. The Baal Shem Tev, who was born in Ukraine, said, a soul comes into this world for 70, 80 years, sometimes to do one favor for another person, for another Jew, a spiritual favor or a physical, a material favor. Those big rocks look like those essential, innate characteristics that I must nurture day in and day out. Your relationship with your soul, your relationship with your inner core, with your inner body, with your inner voice, with your inner essence, your relationship with God. Those big stones look like nurturing your deepest relationships, your deepest attachments, your marriages, your relationship with your children, your relationships with your closest friends, with your loved ones. It's allowing yourself to be attached to things that really matter. Those relationships that are truly, truly valuable that we can often dismiss and disregard because we're all busy. I got to make money and I got to make ends meet and there's always an appointment and there's something stressful and there's emails to answer and the phone is ringing and there's a new clip by Rabbi YY or there's a, whatever it is. Maybe that goes into the big rocks also. I don't know. You'll ask the rabbi. But those relationships, don't let go of. Those are important stuff. Those are important of nurturing our deepest emotional and spiritual needs. Nurturing our presence of self as a manifestation of God in this world. And then you have the little rocks and you have the sand and you have the water and you'll already figure out what that is in your life. My dearest friends, Today's Sunday. Sunday is a day known as the day of Havdalah. <laughs> Havdalah means separation. There's an unbelievable, very beautiful Jewish tradition. Saturday night, there's a mitzvah called Havdalah. Just like we make Kiddush, we welcome the Sabbath, the Shabbat. We also say goodbye to Shabbos. They're saying hello and they're saying goodbye. It's harder to say goodbye. We call it closure. And there's a special ceremony called Havdalah. Many of you grew up with it. We pick up a cup of wine. We say a special blessing over the wine. We light a flame. We smell the psamim, the herbs, the incense. And the text of the blessing is, Blessed are you God, King of the world, who separates between holiness and the mundane, between light and darkness, between the Jewish people and the nation, between the seventh day and the sixth days. Blessed are you, God, who creates a segregation between the holy and the mundane. And I always wondered, what's the blessing? What's the blessing? You're thanking God for what? I understand I thank God for breathing and thank God for my eyesight and thank God for my taste buds and thank God for my ability to wake up and to walk and thank God for life. But what am I thanking God for, Havdalah? You separated, you made a separation between the holy and the mundane. Okay, great. So Shabbos is over. I don't even like when Shabbos is over. (laughs) I like when Shabbos continues. But it comes, it's over. There's a very deep message here, friends. Life has a lot of Havdalahs. There's periods and there is transitions. And they're very dramatic. The transition between holy and mundane. Between Shabbat and Saturday night and Sunday. Jews on Saturday night suffer from a condition I call PSS, post-Shabbos syndrome. That's why we have to smell the psalm. The Talmud says in Beitzah, we have an extra soul on Shabbos and it leaves when Shabbos leaves. And it's painful, it's difficult, it's traumatic for a Jew. There's a void. 
Mitzvah Shabbos on Saturday night. That's why people feel they have to go out on Saturday night because there's a spiritual void. So we think pizza, bowling, something else is going to fill it. It doesn't really fill it because it's a different type of void. The best thing to fill the void Saturday night is to learn Gemara probably. (laughs) But the fact is there's a void. Life has transitions. We can't be children forever. We can't be in our mother's womb. We emerge, and then we grow up. It's nice to remain a child, to have that innocence. We grow up. We get married. We shoulder the responsibilities of a family. We get older, and everybody's life goes through transitions. So there's different approaches. Some people deny it, or they're not good at it. They repress it. They don't deal with it. Judaism says, no, hamavdal ben kaidash l'chal. Learn that even the separations also come from God. When you go from one period in life to another period in life, it's not a mistake. You weren't throwing off the plane. You weren't throwing under the bus. You weren't throwing into a brutal and difficult reality. How do I deal with it? The same God who created the holy, created the mundane, and He is the one who created the gulf and said, now we start a new period and I'm giving you power to deal with it. There's a beautiful song my grandfather used to sing Saturday night. It's an Eastern European Yiddish song. Altira Avdi Yaakov. God says, don't fear my servant Jacob. Shabbos is over. There was a fear in the Jewish heart. How can I go in to a week that may be very stressful? So God says, Altira Avdi Yaakov. <laughs> it's a beautiful song. Don't fear my servant Jacob. Goes through the entire, the entire Hebrew alphabet telling Jews, don't fear. Because the same God who created Shabbos he also created Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And then it's Friday already, Erev Shabbat. So the point is, when you go through seasons in life, the transitions, the fluctuations, the vicissitudes shouldn't cause fear. They have to create a humility and a curiosity to open ourselves up to the new energy of this season. And the same is true with history. Every year has a different energy. Every week has a different energy. Every day has a different energy. You know, every hour has a different energy in Kabbalah. And that's why our moods change. And that's why we have ups and downs. It's not a mistake. Life doesn't continue on one plane. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. Life is a roller coaster. Hopefully, sometimes it's a Ferris wheel. At least it's a merry ground. (laughs) But there's movement. Sheva yipol tzaddik v'kam, Proverbs says. The righteous person falls down seven times and gets up. All those separations also come from God. They're not mistakes. And as the Baal Shem Tov taught, and with this I leave you and then we'll go to questions. And again, he is the light of the Ukraine. Mezhebush is where the Baal Shem Tov is still buried. I had the privilege of being there more than once. That's where he taught. That's where he inspired. That's where he lit up the world from. Little shtetl in Ukraine. And the Baal Shem Tov taught, it says in Psalms, Shivisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid, I place God before me constantly. The word Shivisi comes from the word Shaveh, Hishtavut, which means identical, uniform. And he said, when God is before me always, then there's a uniformity in my life, there is a stability in my life. Because even if I'm going through upheavals and transitions, the fact that I know that God is before me constantly allows me to hold on to something that becomes a stable and eternal and infinite anchor, that throughout all of my vicissitudes, there's a shivisi, there's a certain regulation, a calmness, a serenity that pervades me throughout. 
May we be able to internalize the Baal Shem Tov Shivisi in our lives. Thank you so much. Okay, first question. Do you think this war is a continuation of the past tragic events of our history? What's the reason this is happening? Do you know the inner reason behind this war? Listen, I, I don't have that knowledge and I don't have that expertise. You know, obviously, it's very, very worrisome. It's very, very disturbing. Yeah, you can ask questions in the chat, yeah. It's very, very worrisome. It's very, very disturbing. Um, uh, the president of Russia, Mr. Putin, I believe has made a colossal, colossal, cruel, cruel mistake um, to try to handle this crisis rather than through negotiation and diplomacy, through bloodshed and, and such brazen uh, aggression and violence. And I feel bad because instead of going down into history as somebody who built Russia and really helped Jews a lot in Russia and, and helped them a lot, um, I've seen what goes on in Russia. And a lot of us to the credit, Putin, you know, I fear that he's going to go down in history as a, as a monster. And uh, it's, 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 it's a sad day. It's a sad day for Russia. It's a sad day for Ukraine. You know, I spoke to some friends in Russia as well. And, uh, you know, they're under Putin, but everybody, many of them feel just, they feel shame. They feel embarrassed. They feel hurt. There's very little they can do besides pray for their brothers and sisters in Ukraine, but it's, it's a very, pain, very painful situation. And, you know, the weakness of the United States of America and other countries has also emerged in a dramatic way. And uh, somebody says, what are the great lessons for this, for the Jewish people? Well, the first lesson is for Israel. First lesson is for Israel. For decades, we have been hearing people tell Israel, don't worry, make concessions, you know, Oslo records, give away Gaza. And if they use the territories, if they use the ammunition, if they use the weapons to declare war, you have the United States of America to help you. Europe will help you. The United Nations will help you. Other peace-loving countries will help you. Israel was always schlepped to make concession after concession after concession. And it knew those concessions can endanger literally the six, seven million Jews living there and Arabs living there. But they were told, the world will be behind peace. So now look what happened. Russia invades Ukraine, and nobody could stop it. Nobody can stop it. Now the Ukrainians are putting up a very, very impressive fight. I don't think Putin expected this type of resistance, this type of fight. And Vladimir Zelensky, who's of course a Jew, the first president of Ukraine, I think ever, who's a Jew, his father is Jewish, his father is Jewish, his mother is Jewish. I don't know if you know, his grandfather fought the Nazis in the Soviet war against the Nazis. There were four brothers and three were killed and his, fa- his grandfather survived. Much, much of his family was killed in the Holocaust in the Ukraine. Some of them ran away. His grandmother, I think, ran away. That's why they survived. They came back to the Ukraine after the Holocaust where he was born. And, you know, he was offered to leave and he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. But we're dealing with a very, very difficult situation. Now, this is not about, uh, I, I have no intimate knowledge in the politics between Russia and Ukraine. But we have to remember that the traumas of war 
are devastating. And nobody thought that in the 21st century, a leader would not understand that to go invade another country in such a fashion is simply, simply heinous. The bloodshed that wars have caused, the pain, the trauma, for generations, for centuries, is indescribable. And even one life, even one life that's lost is a, an, an international catastrophe. But this is a great lesson for Israel. People tell Israel, don't worry, people will be here for you. Who, who's going to be here for you? And that's why it's so important that Israel remain absolutely strong and with God's grace, always focus on its national security interest to make sure that every citizen, every Jew and every non-Jew, every good person is protected there and protected there in the most meticulous and precise way and God forbid not to make a concession that literally can offer terrorists the ability to continue to launch attacks that kill and maim innocent men, women, and children. I think that is one major lesson. Next question. Very good questions here. People are talking about the possibility of a third world war. I'm terrified. I can't find peace. I can't sleep at night. I'm scared for my children. I am so concerned also about our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine. I'm concerned about my son, we're about to send our children to Poland on the March of the Living, and we're about to send them to Israel next week. We're from Mexico City. Oh, okay, not from London. Do you think it's safe for our children? They've been waiting for this trip for two years. By the way, you could put questions in the chat. I see the chat. Just do chat to everyone, and I could see your questions in the chat, because I see somebody asked. You could put your question in the chat. Listen, I, I can't answer questions that I don't know the answer to. I'm not a prophet. I don't have wisdom that you don't have. And I don't have knowledge that you don't have. If you ask me for my hunch, this is, but this is completely not scientific and not based on any political, uh, military, sociological, economical expertise or any intimate deep knowledge of Russia and Mr. Putin and the dynamics and the geopolitical situation and the relationships between the countries and NATO and the European Union and Russia and America. I know what you know. Um, But generally speaking, fear, even though it's normal, it doesn't help us. Fear doesn't help us. As I said before, this is a time for leadership. It's a time for clarity. It's a time to be ambassadors of faith, resilience, empowerment, strength, hope, compassion, fortitude. It's not a time to buckle down in fear. It's a time to ask, what is my role? What is our role? What can I do in my own little corner and in my own small way to help my brothers and sisters? I don't see a third world war. I don't see. I think these are extraordinary times. Um, I don't see the problem of going to Israel or of going to Poland. Again, I, I don't see, but I'm a very, you know, I have my own limited tools and I, I'm not answering you from a place of deep spiritual authority. Please understand that. And it's important to encourage our children, to explain to our children, you know, what is at stake in all of us being here in this world, 
teaching what the Torah wants us to teach, to create a world of love and kindness and compassion, a world in which every human being is respected as being formed in the visage of God, where life has absolute and non-negotiable value. We want to empower our children, not scare our children. You know what you need? You need to call one of the Chabad Rebetzins in the Ukraine (laughs) and let their children speak to your children. (laughs) Next question. Going back to Corona, has the attitude to precautions and rules shown by some Orthodox communities led to unnecessary suffering and unavoidable deaths? Is Is that the case? It could be that some people, I'm sure some people were not careful when they should have been careful, and it probably led to unavoidable suffering and death. I just want to say one more point, and this is not to challenge what you're saying at all. Um, in the early days of Corona, I sent out quite a few messages that we have to be careful, especially protect the elderly and those who are vulnerable of contracting the Corona where it, where it, where it proved life-threatening. What I do want to say, however, is there was one aspect in which I think people, like in Orthodox communities, were accused of what they were not, what they should have not been accused of. And that is, you can argue about it and you can disagree with them, that's fine, but I just want to bring out a point. In many communities, they believe that since Corona did not affect children, so the children should not suffer. And we should not take away from children their social life, which is so important for their neurological and emotional development. And therefore, in some places, the children continue to meet, either in homes or in synagogues, in smaller settings. And people criticize them terribly. But if you study all the depression that came out among children and teenagers who were isolated for so many months, it could be that their decision was very wise. So you can disagree with it, and you could say it was the wrong decision, but I can certainly hear that perspective, that they felt, why should the children suffer? It's not fair to take away those formidable years where children develop their identities and they need the attachment, they need the friends, they need the closeness, they need to run around, they need to play around. This was an opinion of some leaders, and you know what, you can disagree with it, but I would not just dismiss that as irresponsible because I think there was a lot of pedagogical and emotional wisdom in that, even if they... Even if there's another opinion. But people who were not careful when it came to protecting people's lives who were vulnerable, obviously it could have been a grave mistake or was a grave mistake. We have witnessed a pandemic. We have witnessed huge damaging hurricanes affecting the Pacific Island. We are now witnessing a war. We witnessed economic hardship. Jews and humans suffered a lot. In some strange way, these challenges bring about both good and bad. What are your thoughts about it? Can such good come with no challenges, no change? I think you're 100% right. This is a time when the world is going through major, major changes. From the Lubavitcher Rebbe I heard 30 years ago, that this is a time when the energy of redemption, the energy of Geula, has entered into the world, and the world is going through a transformation from a state of exile into a state of redemption. Many also great rabbis and sages have shared similar sentiments and experiences, 
but as a student of the Lubavitcher Rebbe and one of his oral scribes in the last years, I heard it from him dozens of times during the last years, 1990, 1991, and 1992, 30 years ago, actually exactly 30 years ago when he suffered a stroke and he couldn't speak anymore. It, was, it would be tomorrow, 30 years ago, 27th, other one, 1992. But the point is that you could look at all of these changes and see them as very depressing changes. And they are difficult changes, there's no question. There's turmoil, there's pain, a lot of suffering. You know how many deaths were caused by corona. We know now the bloodshed in Ukraine. May there be a stop to all of it, and may everybody be safe, especially you know, all good people should be safe. All people should be safe, and all good and innocent people should be spared and safe and secure. It's a time of upheavals, no question. But we could look at upheavals in two ways. We could look at upheavals as something that's just, you know, everything is coming to an end. Or really, there's an invitation here for a new consciousness. And that's what's happening. There's an invitation for a new consciousness. And yes, the worst in people can come out, or we can choose for the best in people to come out. The fact is that the pandemic brought together so many people, it was wonderful to see. Yes, as I said, some of the highest angels in people, some of the best things in people came out. Does God want all Jews to physically fight against ideological fascists and racists who hate the Jewish people? Do we have to fight physically? Well, there is a rule in the Talmud, if somebody is coming to kill you, you have to kill him first. You have to protect innocent life. That's why it's so important. God tells us, just like we learn Torah and we do mitzvahs, we need to physically protect ourselves. That's why it's so important that Israel is strong and powerful. Because even though without Hashem's protection, nobody can live and nobody can walk and nobody can breathe. That's true. But God wants us to implement the tools of nature and utilize the tools of nature to bring good to the world and to protect innocent people. So that is very, very important. What can I do to calm down my children? Okay, the answer is, I think it's important to calm down yourself. <laughs> Some good things is to listen to music together. When I spoke to Odessa last night, they were dancing. <laughs> I said, what are you doing in the basement? They had music on and they were dancing. <laughs> Imagine. And the kids put on their Purim costumes and they did a Purim skit in this, uh, in this sheltered basement with the... Uh, there were 11 people in that particular shelter. They were dancing and doing a Purim skit. So learn from them. Put on music, do meditation, breathe, pray together, talk to them, explain to them what it means to have faith, to have betochen, to have trust, to know that we are all connected and we're connected to eternity. So these are some of the things I think we can do to help ourselves and our children regulate ourselves. And maybe you need maybe special assistance. Maybe you can seek somebody who's, who knows you well and can maybe give you more specific advice. I want to thank very, very much the Chigwell community, Rabbi Davis, Chigwell United Synagogue, and all of you who have graced us here with your presence. I know this was a whole day of learning with Rabbi Tatz and other Rabbi Rowe and other great rabbis and teachers and communicators, rabbis and rabbitsons, and I thank you for the privilege of being here with you, my dear friends, brothers and sisters from London, sending you love and blessings and chazak, chazak, 
May we all strengthen each other, empower each other, be here for each other, encourage each other. As a community, this is the time where we got to be here for each other. We can't just think about ourselves. Every person has that ability and that power to be able to support, to sustain, to uplift, to animate our brothers, our sisters, friends, strangers, community members, children, nephews, nieces, neighbors, children of neighbors. So seize the moment, seize the opportunity. And may we indeed use these moments to become stronger and more empowered than ever until the great moment when we will see the consciousness of oneness called the consciousness of Gula, the redemptive consciousness, descend on our planet speedily in our days. Amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good night. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.